So we're in the, the part three of this series called Enemies of the Heart. And I know, again, it's a bit of an ominous title, a bit serious, uh, but we, we've been looking at this whole subject, and at the beginning, we, we kind of made some observations uh, that this world and the culture around us doesn't really tell us to look at our hearts. It tells us to look at our actions and, and our behavior. And that, to a large degree, is what we're, we're measured on, judged on. And if we can control the way that we behave, well, then in general, things will probably go well. Uh, and, you know, whatever's going on on the inside, as long as we can keep it, keep it concealed or keep it to ourselves and it doesn't come out, uh, then we should be okay. And so we learn how to play the game of life and we learn how to behave well, but oftentimes we're miserable because what's going on on the inside contradicts sometimes what's going on on the outside. And so the message of Jesus is the reverse. Jesus says that what's on the inside comes out. And so out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, he says. He says, from within come all of these things. And he gives a list of, of uh, really nasty behavior. And he says, it bubbles out. So whatever is on the inside is eventually going to come out. And the question that the scripture asks is not, how's your behavior? How's your behavior? It's an important question. But the scripture wants to challenge us to say, uh, how is your heart? Uh, have you checked your heart lately? Uh, the writer of the Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from your heart. So what's, what's going on in the heart? And the material that we're using talks about four different mm, diseases of the spiritual heart, if you will, four maladies, four toxins of the spiritual heart. And they're all based on a, on a concept that someone owes somebody something. There's a debt-to-debtor relationship in all four of these toxins. So we put it on the screen last week, and I'll show you again. Uh, you know, if you, have, if you have financial debt, and I would hazard to say that many of you in this room do, if the Canadian statistics are right, well, let's say you have $10,000 of credit card debt at 19% or 19.9%, and you make the minimum payment, Guess what? You're in debt for the next 83 years. So you're, it, will, it will take you to the grave and beyond the grave, your debt. And debt is an interesting thing because it's always there. It's always there in the background. No matter what you're doing, it's always there. Even when you're sleeping, that debt is accumulating. While you sleep, the credit card companies are taking money from you. And it kind of changes the way you, you know, it can be very... It can be very depressing when you start thinking about what's really going on with just financial debt. Well, imagine if you live that way, but emotionally, relationally, somebody owes somebody something in these, in these relationships. And, and with debt, you've got one of two choices. Either the debt is paid or the debt is canceled. It's one or the other. And you'll, you have discovered, I'm sure, that uh, with Visa and MasterCard, they do not cancel your debt. I've never heard a story like that. You know, you can hear stories of people winning the lottery, but you never hear, well, just, you know, MasterCard just decided to cancel somebody's debt today. It doesn't really happen. Either it has to be forgiven or it has to be paid. Uh, and in the case of financial debt, it has to be paid. Uh, so these are the four, the four heart toxins just to review. And it's all debt debtor stuff. So last, year, last week we covered guilt. And in guilt, it's I owe you. So the person lives their life 
in that whole, I took something from someone, sometime, somewhere, and I live my life with that sense of debt to that person. So I owe you. And the remedy for guilt was what? It starts with a C. Any of you remember? Say it again, yeah. Yeah, confession, right? So we talked about confession last week, which is, a, which is an often misunderstood word. And we talked about some of the misunderstandings about confession and what true confession um, looks like from, a, from the definition of the Bible, okay? Uh, today, we're going to look at anger. And anger is not I owe you, but you owe me. You owe me, and we'll unpack that in a few minutes. And then uh, next week, we're going to look at greed, and in greed, I owe me. And then finally, we'll close it with uh, jealousy, and in jealousy, it's God owes me. So somebody owes somebody something, and uh, again, the challenge of the Scripture, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of your life. And we just observed again last week that there's no magic bullet uh, that God gives to you to, to change yourself in these areas. We often, uh, again, as, as people who believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're of the charismatic uh, uh, branch, if you will, in theology. That means we believe in the charisma. That's the gifts of the Spirit in, in the Greek language. And so a lot of times, Christians who believe in these things, we think, oh, yes, I've become a Christian, and now all of my problems are solved. No more guilt, no more anger, no more greed, no more jealousy. Push the magic button, and then it's all over. And God just, he automatically transforms me, and that's it. Uh, some of you, I think, have discovered over time that that's false and that that's not true. And what God does is he wants you to learn skills that he's put in the, in the scripture for us to learn, and he wants us to learn to confront ourselves and to discipline ourselves using what he teaches us in his word, you see. There isn't really a magic bullet that's prescribed where God just does all the work for you. He wants you to learn, and he wants you to learn from his word. And so we're going to talk about this, this subject of anger today, heart toxin number two, you owe me. And we need to define this because, because not all anger is a bad anger. You know, you see the little red guy on the screen and he is, he's quite upset. You know, he's a lot of happy people around him, but he's very, very upset. And in You Owe Me, it's something was done to me by a person, by people, uh, and there is a sense of that needs to be fixed, that needs to be punished. That needs to be corrected. You now, you owe me. You took something from me, whatever the thing is, and now you owe me. But we need to be careful how we define it because, again, not all anger is bad. And I want to use um, an example from Genesis chapter 4, the first, the first instance of what I'll call toxic anger in all of Scripture. Uh, and this is the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, but before we get there, um, not all anger is a bad anger. Uh, for instance, uh, it's Black History Month this month, yes? So, any of you see Black Panther? Nobody's seen it yet? You've seen it? Okay, Justin saw Black Panther. I mean, they released Black Panther in Black History Month. It's a very clever marketing tactic, and the movie is just getting rave reviews, and people are going to see it in droves. 
Um, I don't hear a lot about some things when I'm, when I'm listening to the reports and all of the, the acknowledgement of history and so forth in Black History Month. Uh, 200 plus years ago, and I guess we don't hear about it because the people who, who were influential in this were white people, but 200 plus years ago, there was the transcontinental slave trade. Any of you know what that is? That's where, that's where African people were essentially being traded for sugar. And uh, it went on for a long, long time. And they were treated worse than tortured animals. There is a fantastic movie uh, called Amazing Grace uh, about, about the story of the transcontinental slave trade and how it was brought down by a number of people, like most or all of them were white, um, but headed by a fellow by the name of William Wilberforce who was a, an evangelical, he was a Protestant evangelical man, and he got angry at seeing this take place. He got angry. And so what did he do? He did something about it, and he fought uh, tirelessly in the British Parliament, him and a number of people, even at the expense of his own life, to bring down the transcontinental slave trade. He got angry. Well, that's a good anger. That's a discontent that leads to change in a system that, that led to the freedom of people. Uh, so that's not the kind of anger I'm talking about when I say to toxic anger. Uh, fast forward to today, you know that we have a, a, a very good relationship with a, with a food bank here in the city of Brossard. I started volunteering there probably a year and a half ago, just on Thursday afternoons when they distribute food to some probably 300 families on that day. Uh, but lo and behold, I got myself in trouble. So now I'm there two and a half days a week. And I'm running there, they have a little thrift store. It's actually not so little, it's big. And so I help run that thrift store on Monday and Tuesday. And then I go on Thursday and dealing with the food over there. So I just get, seems to get deeper and deeper. Uh, and the reason, the reason I do that is because I just love being in the community, love being around non-Christian, non-churched folks. I just, I just, I'm addicted to that. And um, so I served there, and the director of the food bank and the whole operation, uh, we'll have him come and speak one day. Uh, he's a, a Christian man, and he has an anger about poverty. There is a constant, unending desire to fight poverty. It makes him angry. And so this is why he did all this and found a way to try and address poverty in all forms. They have an orphanage in Haiti. I mean, he just try, wants to find any way, any new way to attack and fight poverty because it makes them angry. Okay, that's, those, that's a healthy and godly expression of anger. That's not the type of anger that we're talking about today. We're talking about a different kind, and this is a toxic kind. So Genesis chapter 4, this is when we first see it right in the first family of the Bible, the very first family. So you've got uh, Adam and Eve, and Eve gets pregnant, gives birth to, remember his name? I just said it, it starts with C. Cain, okay, you're with me. Okay, so Cain is the firstborn. And she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. And later she gives birth to another son, and what's his name? 
Abel. Okay, you're tracking with me. So Abel and Cain, they did different things. We're told Abel kept flocks. That means he worked with animals. And Cain, he worked the soil, the ground. So they, were, they, they did different things. One is dealing with animals. One is dealing with agriculture. Okay? So in the course of time, we're told that Cain brought some of the, the fruits of the soil as an offering. So presumably it grew things and he brought it to God as an offering to God, an offering to the Lord. And then we're told, verse 4, but Abel, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Aha. So, you know, you've got the one son who brings his offering from the land that he works, and you've got another one who brings a different offering from the animals that he works with. And it's a very interesting response that happens to both of these offerings uh, that are brought to God. The, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, and he did not look on, uh, with favor on Cain's offering. So Cain was very angry. There it is. It's the first instance. He was very angry, and his face was downcast. And so God has a discussion with Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? It's a curious question. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must, Cain, you must master it. Cain ignores the caution of God, and he says to his brother Abel, let's go for a walk out in the field. And that's the last time that Abel would be seen alive while they were out in the field. Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. And then God gets involved and he says to Cain, where's your brother? As if he didn't know. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what you, what you have done. And he, he challenges him. He says, your brother cries out to me from the ground and he banishes Cain, but he also protects him at the same time. And there you have the first instance of toxic anger in the scripture. It is a very curious story because we're not really sure why did God disapprove of the offering of Cain? Why? We look at it and we say, it sounds pretty good to me. I mean, he worked in agriculture. He brought this stuff to God. Why did God disapprove of it? And the answer is we don't know. Uh, scholars invent all kinds of theories about this, but the answer is we really don't know what the details were. It's almost as if something, there's something that we don't know about the story. Uh, uh, John would comment on this in 1 John in the New Testament. He says, don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one, he says, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Uh, we want to know that too because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Well, it doesn't help us. What, were, what actions were evil? What did Cain do that was so wrong before he even murdered his brother? And the answer is we're not real sure. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't help us much either. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. 
Why was it better? We're not really sure. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So it's a curious story because we really don't know why this happened. Why did God disapprove of one offering and why did he accept another? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Cain wants to get even. And it's, Cain doesn't get mad at God. He didn't say, God, how come you accepted his offering and not mine? No, he doesn't get mad at God. What does he do? He goes after his brother. And that's the first instance of you. You, you owe me. You owe me. You stole the blessing of God from me. God used to accept me. He used to accept what I gave him. And now God accepts what you gave him. So you owe me and you owe me big time and you are going to pay. I'm going to take vengeance on you personally and you are going to pay with your life. This is toxic anger. How do you know it's toxic and how do you know it's not toxic? When there is a desire for personal vengeance, it's a toxic anger. You say, oh, come on, this is thousands of years ago. It's the first family in the Bible. It's Old Testament. It doesn't apply to my life. I'm starting to fall asleep now. Fast forward to today and, and, and just, just, just look at the news. Uh, this past week, we, we saw down south uh, 17 people shot dead in a high school. And what, what this again and again and again, it happens. And here's what you see in the, in the reports, in the news. You have the, you have the gun lobbyists on one hand, and they say, look, guns don't kill people. People kill people. This shooter was this, and he was mentally ill, and he was all these things. And, you know, we need to learn to deal with this type of mental illness. Uh, it's not the guns that kill the people. It's the people that kill the people. And then you have the people on the left side and the more liberal view. And they say, you know, look at these crazy gun laws. This person was allowed to legally buy a semi-automatic weapon. Uh, what kind of crazy law is that? I believe that both sides are missing something. There is a toxic anger that drives that kind of behavior. There is a toxic anger that wraps itself around the heart of the person and it, gets, it wraps it tighter, and those tentacles wrap tighter and tighter around the heart of the person. You combine that with things like mental illness and perhaps drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and presto, you have a recipe for extreme violence and danger. And we see it over and over and over again. You say, oh, come on, it's very dramatic. That's the United States of America. We don't live there. I remember some whatever it was, 10, 11 years ago, uh, I was working downtown uh, for Don Mann, one of our, one of our missionaries now. Uh, my, how things have changed in both of our lives. And I remember when Kim Veer Gill went into Dawson College and shot 19 people. I, I was there. I was out in the street when 300 kids started running in my direction, I grabbed about half a dozen kids, brought them into the office. They were in shock. They had literally jumped over the pools of blood, they said. Um, what a lot of people don't remember about the shooter, that shooter attended one of our own Pentecostal churches for a time in the, in this, in, in the greater Montreal area. That shooter was friends with a, a pastor friend of mine with one of his sons. Personal friends with him, went to his house, everything. What happened? The toxic anger starts to take over the life. 
And the person says, not only do you owe me, everyone owes me. People who I don't know owe me, and I'm going to make everyone pay. And we're running around and we're saying it's mental illness, it's this, it's gun laws, it's, yeah, it's all those things. But on the inside, there's a toxic anger that is eating away at people's lives. Uh, just, just this week in my daughter's school, she goes to a high school here in Longay, a local high school. There was a, there was a fight that broke out uh, on, I think it was Thursday. Uh, and our daughter came home and she told us about the fight that happened. So you listen to it, you go, man, the people were angry, angry. There's always a girl involved when there's, when there's a fight like that. And so she described to us the details of this fight. We're like, wow, that sounds really serious. I hope everyone was suspended, etc., etc. So we take our daughter to school in the morning, and the first thing that she hears as soon as she gets to the schoolyard is there's a gun threat at the school. That's the first thing that she hears. And so I said, okay, so I go and I talk to the people in the office there, and I said to them, what's with this gun threat? Oh, everything's okay, sir, everything's okay, the authorities have been, been involved in it, everything's okay, the school's perfectly safe, etc., etc. So I'm a bit of a skeptic, okay, uh, I was born in the USA, so I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to threats of guns and things like that, and so I said to our daughter, you're going to stay home today. <laughs> so, uh, we, so we waited, and they said, well, we'll communicate the news to everyone, and we waited, waited a few hours to see what was going on. So lo and behold, the news started to develop, and, and sure enough, it, w- it was related to the fight that happened the day before. And overnight on social media, the, the, there was an individual, uh, everybody seems to know the individual's name, but of course he was 16, he's 16 years old, so nobody releases it in the, midi, in the media, but everybody in high school knows the kid's name. And, and this kid uh, uh, got very, very angry and started posting things on social media very, very quickly on Thursday night that were extremely volatile, to say the least. And uh, somebody called 911 and said, excuse me, but uh, something's going to happen on Friday and it doesn't look too good. And the police, thankfully, got involved extremely quickly and they actually arrested the individual, arrested him. I'm not even sure when. Uh, There were rumors that he was arrested on the school premises and had a gun. Uh, Those are apparently not true. He was arrested sometime, I'm not sure when, but there was a panic in the air. There was a general panic in the air, but the situation was handled, I think, I think fairly well. But what do you have there? You have a toxic anger. So that person who made those threats, so-and-so, you took something from me, and I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make you pay tomorrow morning, and I'm letting everyone know that you are going to pay. This is a toxic anger. It's a desire for personal vengeance. You say, oh, this is very dramatic, Pastor. It's very intense, but I don't live there. Um, it, you know where we do live? It's where we, there are things that happen to us in our lives, in our personal lives. And, some, and it's, not, you know, it, it, it's, it's not of the same caliber as some of the stories we've just heard. Uh, but it's in particular when injust, injustice comes our way. And things happen to us, and people do things to us, and we, and we have a justifiable right to be angry. We're justified in our anger. And that's where it starts to become really personal for us. 
And now I've been a pastor for almost 17 straight years full time. You know the kinds of stories that you hear when you're in it for that long? I, I would rather forget some of them. I have met people who have endured things that I just find astounding. Uh, I've met people who have endured uh, unspeakable things. I would dare not share them in public. And you just wonder, how does a person learn to cope with that? How does a person learn to deal with that? And you see many, many things if you're, if you're in my particular vocation. Uh, can I tell you just a broad stroke? Uh, some very, very common things where people feel really, really taken advantage of and very much uh, unjustly treated and very much ripped off and justifiably angry. You know what? The, probably the most common thing that I've ever seen is affairs. Affairs, married couples, engaged couples, and people are having affairs all over the place. And, of course, they come to the pastor afterward, and the pastor has to pick up the damage and deal with the carnage. Uh, and now it's, it's even more pronounced because now we have electronics and we can have electronic affairs. Uh, unless the men in the room are getting nervous, I've seen both. I've seen women cheat on their husbands. I've seen men cheat on their wives. I've seen both of them into electronic forms of pornography. I've seen all kinds of wacky things, things that you look and you scratch your head and you say, huh, they did what? And I've seen Christians in this. I've seen Christian leaders in this. I've seen pastors in this. Uh, and it is very, very common nowadays. And I'm telling you, the victims get angry. When they're cheated on, they get angry. And they get justifiably angry. The kids get angry if they have kids. And there's just anger that begins to build. And there's a quest for justice in a case like that, can I just tell you, married people, engaged people, let me just be very, very blunt with you as a, as a general warning, okay? And this is males, females, I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm just painting it all with one brush, just to make it really crystal clear for you. If you have something on your phone, on your computer, on your tablet that you don't want your kids to see, you don't want your spouse to see, they will see. You will get caught, and if there's something that you don't want them to see, you're in serious trouble, my friends. Uh, and this is how it starts, and this is so common in churches now. I'm telling you, I've had to pick up the pieces of multiple, multiple uh, affairs of that kind and, and the physical kind, multiple at the same time. So when you've got someone coming to see you and it's this affair, and then you've got someone coming to see you and it's that affair, after a while you say, wow, is there anybody who's not having an affair? Is there anyone who's not looking at this stuff? That's how pervasive it is, folks. And it starts at a younger and younger age now. I'm telling you, and unfortunately, it is no respecter of religion. Uh, and you, you, you've got Christian leaders who are falling to this stuff. Very, very common. I've seen it. It's the most common thing where people feel ripped off justifiably. I've seen people steal things from people. People manipulate and deceive and con. Um, all kinds of things that you say, wow, this person has a reason to be very, very angry. Very angry. But it's not whether or not you have a reason. 
It's not whether or not you're justified to be angry. There are many of you in this room, and if you get up and share your story, we would all agree to say you have a right to be angry. It's not whether it's justified. It's whether or not it's toxic. That's the question at hand. And it's toxic, again, when you have that desire for personal vengeance against the person or the people. Then it is a toxic anger, my friend. You say, well, it doesn't really bother me too much. It actually, I actually quite like it. I like pitying myself. I like my story. It makes me feel stronger, whatever, whatever. And you feed off of this toxic anger. Okay, let me tell you what the consequences are for your toxic anger before you get too comfortable with it. And you, you find this in the book of Ephesians uh, verses, uh, chapter 4, for example, verses 25 to 27. Very, very direct and blunt from the pen of Paul. He's writing from a prison cell. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says, quoting from the, the Psalms. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil, he says. Oof, very strong. Do not give the devil a foothold. What did God say to Cain back in our story? He says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's almost the same kind of image from the book of Ephesians, you do not give the devil a foothold, he says to those people. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And he's talking about an anger in personal relationships there, and it's a toxic anger. And what happens is this, this word here, do not give the devil a foothold, it's like a, a place. Uh, it's a, a space. It's like a, it's like a parking place. Um, and you see the picture of the the big foot that's in the door there. Uh, I'll phrase it this way. Don't, don't give the devil a rented room in your heart. That's what that toxic anger does. You're allowing him, you're allowing him to get his foot in the door. You say, come on, it, I don't have problems with the devil. I'm just angry. <laughs> I'm just justifiably angry. Let me explain how it works. Okay, your desire for personal vengeance this, this is something that is going to squeeze the life out of you and paralyze you for the rest of your life if you keep seeking that. The one who is the master at personal vengeance is the devil himself. If you understand where he comes from, and the prevailing theory is that this is an angel gone bad. Uh, this is a, a created angelic being that went sour and that wanted to take the place of God and pride was found in his heart and he was therefore banished from his place of authority uh, in the heavenly realms and he was banished from it. And he is this adversary that we deal with. And so the, the, whole, the whole scheme is that, well, he can't, get, he can't get God back. I mean, God created him. So what does he do? He says, well, I'm going I'm to get everybody else back. I'm going to get his creation back. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to paralyze them. I'm going to stifle them. I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to do everything that I can to block them from having a relationship with God. And if they do have a relationship with God, I will paralyze them. I will get them to hurt one another because I will get even and they will pay. 
And that desire that you have for personal vengeance, my friend, that you cannot get over, that is where the enemy comes in. And he says, oh, personal vengeance, I know that one. Let, let me help you with that one. Let me give you some more fuel to the fire. And his tentacles just keep wrapping, wrapping, wrapping around your heart, and you find yourself miserable, and you find yourself paralyzed, and you find yourself constantly seeking that justice, constantly seeking that personal vengeance against the individual. Uh, the writer of the book that we're looking at, he phrases it this way. I love the way he says it. If we demand payment, we will pay. Have you ever noticed that people who do things to you that are unjust, often they don't care at all. <laughs> often they move on with their sweet, merry lives, and you're the one who's angry. You're the one who's left miserable. You're the one who's suffering. You're the one who's seeking justice, and the person is laughing. They don't even know. They don't even know that they did anything wrong to you sometimes. They're so aloof. They're so uncaring. They're so insensitive. They could care less. But you're the one who's suffering. You're the one who's carrying the ball and chain, seeking justice against that person. Some of us are doing that, and the person's dead. The person might be in the grave, and we've still got the ball and chain, dragging it around, seeking personal payment from this individual. It's like the, the story that Jesus told. We covered it before Christmas, the unmerciful servant. You remember the story? And you've got the, the guy who owes you know, a, an astronomical, unpayable amount of money to his master. And he says, well, you know, I'll forfeit my family and maybe that'll... And, the, and what does his master do? He says, I'm canceling your debt. So his master cancels an unforgivable, unpayable debt. He cancels it. And so we don't see any reaction from this guy. He's, he seems, we don't know, is he, is he happy, is he sad? Well, we find out a little later because someone else under his authority owes him about three months wages and he grabs the guy and chokes him by, around, around the neck and he says, pay me what you owe me, pay me what you owe me. And Jesus is the very severe consequences for this type of behavior, Jesus says. Uh, and that's exactly what we do. We carry around that debt. We say, you will pay me what you owe me. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Our relationships go sour. Our marriages go sour. Uh, our spiritual life goes sour emotionally. Some people even say that physically, some in the medical world say that that kind of bitterness can affect a person physically, physically. Some are saying this now. Not entirely an unbiblical thought. When we demand payment, we, we will pay. We are the ones who are suffering in the end. What's the solution? What's the remedy for this kind of toxic anger? Starts with an F. So for guilt, it's confession. For toxic anger, it's not a bad word, although it starts with F, it's forgiveness. This is the remedy for this kind of toxic anger. And the problem is that we have really bad definitions of forgiveness. Uh, probably it's the culture that, that taught us this. Maybe, some, maybe in the church we've mistaught it as well. But if you look at it from a biblical point of view, from a biblical perspective, forgiveness means to cancel the debt. It means MasterCard, if you put it in monetary terms, canceled your debt. Okay, they'll never do that, but you can. You can forgive the debt that the person owes you. So forgiveness, it's not forgetting. Some people say, well, you know, time heals all wounds. Forgive and forget. What's wrong with you? It happened 20 years ago. Something wrong with you? You should forgive and forget. Can I just tell you, you will never forget. 
You'll never forget what the person did to you, what they did to you. You won't forget it. So it's, it's not really forgetting. It certainly isn't condoning where you say, well, that's all right. It's not a big deal. That's condoning the behavior. No, it's still wrong what they did to you, especially if, again, you're, if you're angry in a justifiable fashion. Well, it's still wrong what they did to you. It's not ignoring it. You don't say, well, you know, that you put it behind me somehow. I'll ignore it. It didn't happen. Yes, it did happen. Uh, and you're angry. So it's, it's not those things. What is it? It's, it's canceling. It's canceling the debt. So again, from the book of Ephesians, Paul, he's, he's concluding his thoughts or continuing his thoughts, I should say. Again, writing from a prison cell. He says uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, verses uh, 31 and 32, I'm just going to flip over in my Bible there as I have... Uh, as I have put it in my notes uh, improperly. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses um, uh, 31 to 32, he says this, Get rid of all bitterness and all rage and all anger. Wow, he's really, really blunt again. Brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Wow, get rid of it. How do I get rid of it, Paul? He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Again, we did this before Christmas. Forgiving each other. And here's the qualifier. As just as in Christ, God forgave you. Ah, that turns the tables. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. The problem is we look at it from our perspective all the time. This person wronged me, this person did this to me, and we're always looking at it from our own perspective. It's our nature to do that. Look at it from God's perspective for a minute. You and I were all enemies of God. We all offended God. Our behavior, our thoughts, our, we, we were born with our backs up against God, with our fists clenching against Him. We have, a, we have an, an, innate, an innate sense to transgress His law. We have, a, we have a nature that is bent against God. We were all God's enemies. Uh, if, you, if you got what you deserved and I got what I deserved from God, I would, be, I would be dead and I would be suffering in eternal torment. That's what we deserve for our sin against a holy God. And Paul, writing from a prison cell, him being unjustly treated even at that moment, he says, wait a second, wait a second. God has forgiven me. So I should forgive other people because a debt was paid that I could not pay back. I owed God death itself. That's the punishment for my sin. And yet God paid it for me and therefore I should be quick to extend it to other people. You forgive because God forgave you in Christ on that cross, which we will acknowledge uh, in just a few weeks in the whole Easter, Easter season. You say, well, but okay, but uh, there's a problem with this. And the problem is the person gets away with it. If I cancel the debt, then the person gets away with it and he doesn't pay. Isn't there such thing as consequence? Or I just have to say, oh, well, I just wipe the debt off and the person goes scot-free. Uh, just as the enemy is the master of personal vengeance and the master of, of embittering the heart to provide you with that personal vengeance, 
Uh, God is the master of true justice. God is the master. The person doesn't get off. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, again from the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome. Look how he says it. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. They did evil for you, to you. You do not repay them with evil. That's the devil's way. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That's the Lord's way. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Do not do that. Again, that's the devil's game. But leave room for whose wrath? Leave room for God's wrath. He's the only one who is qualified to mete out justice in a fair way. He's the only one who's qualified to do that. And you leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, and he's going to quote from, uh, from the Old Testament here, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. That's from Deuteronomy, says the Lord. It is mine. That's my business. I will mete out divine justice. That is my job. It is not your job. It is mine. On the contrary, and this is from the Proverbs, this is the advice of Paul, quoting from the Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wow. So it's almost as if the proverb is saying, you really want to get back at your enemy? Be nice to him. Be nice to him. And let, let God have his way. You say, well, God takes too long. Well, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. God, my friend, he, he keeps good books. He keeps real, real good accounts and really, really good records. And he has a way over time. Sometimes it takes a long time, but he has a way of meeting out justice and he never, ever makes a mistake. That is too big a burden for you to carry. You need to let him do that and you need to cancel the debt that that person owes you. You need to cancel it. I want to show you a video uh, just as we're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. And this is a story uh, that is one of the most powerful illustrations of correct forgiveness that I've ever uh, come across. And this is a story of Louis Zamperini. Any of you ever seen the movie Unbroken? You haven't heard of that? Okay, you've seen it. Uh, this is a powerful uh, piece of work that's based on, on this, this man's life. This is a man who, who pre-Second World War was a, was a, a very fast runner, uh, a, an Olympian. We're having the Winter Olympics now, and he was an Olympian and was, was called uh, to, to serve his country and was a bombardier in the whole Second World War, and he was captured by the Japanese and brutally tortured for a period, I think, of two and a half years. And uh, the movie depicts his life. It's a very powerful story of perseverance and courage and, and forgiveness uh, directed by a woman, Angelina Jolie. And uh, there, there's a backstory that they don't capture that much uh, in the movie. And, and that is the the power of the Christian faith in this man's life. So I'm reading uh, just an article here from uh, uh, 
Billy Graham's organization did a documentary about his life. He had been brutally tortured in Japanese prison camps, and when he was finally freed, he came home with bitterness toward life and rage toward his captors. He experienced constant nightmares, became a heavy drinker, had a violent temper, and nearly destroyed everything that mattered to him, including his marriage. There was one particular uh, captor uh, uh, in, the, in the movie, a, a Japanese uh, person, and they called him the bird, uh, particularly sadistic uh, toward, uh, toward this man, uh, Louis Zamperini. And uh, his wife, who feared for her own safety and that of their, their little daughter, began to prepare the divorce papers. Then a neighbor invited the couple to come to a nearby Los, Angel uh, Los Angeles meeting to hear a young, little-known evangelist named Billy Graham. He was not very well known at the time. It was 1949, and the, the writer uh, is, is the child of this man. And my father, uh, sorry, is uh, Billy Graham's uh, child. And my father was preaching in a huge tent downtown at the corner of Washington and Hill Streets. And Lewis wanted nothing to do with any evangelist, but his wife went anyway, and her heart was changed by the power of the gospel. And she tore up the divorce papers, persuaded her husband to go with her for a few days later, uh, a few days, and finally he did, and, and he walked out during the meeting. <laughs> and she begged him to return another day, and, and that time, while Billy Graham was preaching, uh, something changed in this man's life. Go ahead and play that video. He went through some terrible years where he was destroying his marriage, but Louis was saved by his wife's insistence that he go to see a sermon by Billy Graham, who at that time was a very young man, not very well known, but he was speaking in Los Angeles. Louis didn't want to go, but his wife was going to leave him. And he agreed on that basis to go see him speak. And he sat in the back of the audience, and he was unhappy, and he was sullen, but... Graham spoke of things that resonated with Louis, with his experience about how God reaches into people's lives and helps them get through things that seem unsurvivable. I think all the prisoners have basically made the same prayer. Get me home alive to my family, God, and I'll seek you, I'll serve you. And you make promises while you're under a dire situation. But uh, how many of them received her promise? I didn't. And so my life fell apart. And it was at that moment that he made this realization to, to himself that he thought God had actually helped him through this, and he owed God something, and he realized what he needed to do. So I went forward in the meeting, and I made my confession of faith in Christ, and I couldn't believe what happened. While I was still on my knees, my life changed in a matter of moments because I knew I was still getting drunk and I knew that I forgave my guards and I knew it was a miracle because I forgave the first. And, and that was the first night. The first night, two and a half years, I didn't have a nightmare and I haven't had one since. Then Louis realized that God can forgive him for all the rotten things he did in his life, that he ought to be able to forgive those that have done him wrong. So forgiving the guards and the bird uh, was actually salvation for him. 
it really turned him around in an instant. He decided he needed to test his forgiveness to see if he really had truly achieved it. And he went back to Japan to meet the guards who had, who had abused him so terribly. And he went to Sagamo prison where they were all being held for war crimes. He went to every single one of them, looked him in the eye, and told them that he forgave them for mm -hmm. the treatment that he received when he was a prisoner of war. He felt no animosity. He just felt compassion, and they couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It was it was a wonderful experience. He knew he had truly forgiven them. I think it's incredible that he forgave them. That's a lesson that he taught my father and me. By hating somebody, I'm not hurting them. I'm only hurting myself. You can forgive anybody. Forgiveness is always possible. Mm. Forgiveness is always possible. Yeah. So I, I would recommend you check the movie out. Uh, it's probably somewhat raw, uh, but uh, again, that's a little bit of the backstory of, uh, of this man's life. I'm going to put something on the screen now that, that I want you maybe to write down or maybe take a picture of it on your phone. And Michelle, if you could come, if you're in earshot, if you could come and just play in the background uh, on the keyboard. And we're going to close the service with this. Um, and this is a, this is a prayer uh, of forgiveness toward, toward people. And uh, because, again, you need to be very detailed and very specific. So many Christians that I have met say, well, I don't know if I've truly forgiven the person. I don't know if I have or if I have not. And again, when that toxic anger and that quest for vengeance is still there, well, then you have not canceled the debt. Don't think, don't even use the word forgive if it bothers you. Use the term cancel the debt because that's what you need to do. You need to get to a place where that person does not owe you anymore. You have no more quest for personal vengeance and you're the one who's free. You're not the one carrying the ball and chain anymore. And this is the prayer. It's really simple, really, really easy, but very, very powerful if you put it into practice. Again, you can write it down, take a picture of it on your phone if you want. And it goes like this. Heavenly Father, blank has taken blank from me. You, you have to be very specific about it because you know exactly what, who blank is and, and what blank they took from you. you. You know exactly what it is. Well, say it. Uh, blank has taken blank from me. I have held on to this debt long enough. It's been years and years and years maybe I have held it long enough. Maybe I've told this story here before. I can't remember. remember visiting uh, a lady in the hospital, a uh, senior lady. You know, probably at that point had maybe two years left to live. I remember doing her funeral uh, later on. And this lady, you would ask her how she was. And the first thing that came to her mind was not how she was. It was what was done to her. And it was done to her years and years prior. And her, physically, you could see the bitterness in her face. I have held on to this debt long enough. I choose to cancel this debt. I'm going to cancel it. The person does not owe me anything anymore. Uh, blank does not owe me anymore. I, there's no line there, but it should say blank does not owe me anymore. Just as you forgave me, I forgive blank person. And that, my friends, is a very succinct, very short, but very powerful prayer 
of forgiveness. Identify the people. What did they do to you? What did they owe you? And one by one, you need to forgive that person. Maybe you need to do what the, the guy on the video did and you need to go to the person and you need to tell them. He tested himself. He wasn't, maybe he wasn't sure if he had forgiven her if he hadn't. And he went all the way over there back to the people who tortured him. And he looked them in the eye one by one and said, I forgive you. Can you imagine the shock in their faces? Wow, it's very biblical to do what he did. Extremely biblical. And that doesn't necessarily set the person free who committed the crime. It sets the victim free. And you no longer carry uh, that ball and chain. Maybe in some cases you can't do that. Maybe in some cases it's not even a wise idea to do that. But for you to be free, you've got to release that quest for personal vengeance. So I'm going to pray that prayer uh, on your behalf and then you'll be dismissed today. Would you stand with me? And if, if uh, someone could turn the, the house lights on and we're just going to pray this prayer together. You don't have to pray it out loud if you don't want to, but maybe maybe this message, it's it's got your heart pounding and you're saying, oh my goodness, he doesn't know what he's talking about right now, but he's speaking directly to me. This message is exactly uh, for me today. The, well, then maybe you pray that prayer. Maybe you pray it at home, but I'm going to pray it uh, on your behalf. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, someone has taken something from us. And, and Lord, I pray that you would, you would help people to remember you would help people to identify it. You would help people to face it. Uh, you would help people to bring it to you. And, and God, we choose to cancel this debt. We choose to simply cancel it and to forgive it so that that person, those people, would not owe us anymore. They do not owe me. They do not owe us anymore. And just as you have forgiven me, God, of my sin, I forgive that person, those people today, even in this moment as we're standing here. And Lord, we, we, we remind ourselves of the precious gift of forgiveness that you have given to us. Lord, maybe we forget about it sometimes. Maybe it, it just falls by the wayside sometimes. Maybe some of us have grown up in the church, we've been in it so, so long, we don't appreciate it anymore. But God, we thank you for the cross and the gift of forgiveness which enables us enables us not only to be free from our own sin but enables us god to not play the devil's game and to to not hold on to that personal vengeance it enables us god to cancel the debts of those who owe us lord i pray for those today who are who are in the audience and and they feel it they feel the foot of the enemy in their house in their heart they feel the foot of the enemy Lord, give them courage and give them strength to obey you in this thing we call forgiveness, that people would be set free and be enabled to live victoriously through the power of the Spirit of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said,